Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome to another Tactical Tuesday, a short form conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you the practical tools, tips, and advice for building your clean energy business or career. I try to keep these under 25 minutes so that you can enjoy it on your way to work or home or a short jog, wherever you can squeeze it in. A few weeks ago, a message popped up in our Energy Tribe WhatsApp about a press release from NREL, the U.S. National Renewable Energy Lab, claiming that they had achieved a world record and frankly stunning 47.1% efficient solar cell. The chat was a buzz about the implications, so I reached out to my contacts at NREL to see if we could get any insight. The interview you're about to hear is with one of the NREL senior scientists on the team that published the research. Miles Steiner and I go into detail about the achievement, applications, and even timeline for when this kind of technology might see its way into commercial activities. You can find more Tactical Tuesdays just like this one over at mysuncast.com. And in case you missed it, we just completed our first ever Suncast Virtual Summit. You can check out replays of all the live sessions for a limited time at suncastsummit.com. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we are jumping into a Tactical Tuesday that I'm pretty excited about. As I know, uh, in our private WhatsApp group and our Facebook group, people have been talking a lot about this latest announcement from the National Renewable Energy Lab here in the United States around a 47% efficiency record for photovoltaic cell technology. Today, I'm joined by Miles Steiner, who's a senior scientist at the National Renewable Energy Lab's Golden Colorado campus. He's also a co-author of a recent paper published in the journal Nature Energy, where He and his colleagues highlight the 47.1% efficient record efficiency of their latest six-junction PV cell technology. Miles, thanks for taking the time to join us today on Suncast. Thank you for having me. Indeed. Well, this is really, really exciting. You know, I've been in the solar industry for a long time, and I think that one of the things that we sort of hold as a commonly held belief is that the efficiency threshold is somewhere in the mid-30s. seems like you guys blew through that from an efficiency perspective, very recently with your 39% efficient one sun technology. And we'll get into one sun versus hundred plus suns and what all that means. But is it true that there is a, an efficiency threshold or is it a sense that as time goes on and we explore more about material science, we find out more of what's possible? It's a little bit of both. There are efficiency thresholds, but it depends on the architecture of your cell. And what it mostly depends on is the number of photovoltaic junctions that you have. So what I mean by a a photovoltaic junction is really just a a solar cell, so a diode that is collecting light and converting it to electricity. Most people think of uh, solar cells in the context of the silicon cells they put on your roof. 
So those are a single junction. It's a single material. And for those kinds of, of uh, solar cells, there is a threshold in the, in the mid-30s, low-30s, really, for, uh, for PV conversion. But as you add more and more junctions and capture more of the solar spectrum and do it with less losses, then you can raise the efficiency. And, and so then the threshold becomes much higher. I appreciate that introduction because uh, a lot of folks um, perhaps aren't familiar. They think about PV technology and they are familiar with the common silicon solar panels that, as you pointed out, have one junction and uh, is the most common sort of commercialized product. NREL and the work that's been happening through the DOE for many, many years has focused on both terrestrial, which is what most of us are familiar with, and extraterrestrial stuff that's powering spacecraft. My understanding is that you're in a team at NREL called the 3-5 team. Can you help us understand what that means and why that's important to the historical context of what you guys are accomplishing? Sure. So 3-5s refer to materials that are made from the elements in columns three and five of the periodic table. So gallium, indium, arsenic, phosphorus, uh, we construct compounds like gallium arsenide, indium phosphide, gallium indium phosphide. There's a whole range of semiconductors from these material systems. They're very efficient. They can be made very thin. They can be made with very high crystallinity. So it's a really, really good material system, and we're able to get very high efficiencies. We're also able to make what we call multi-junctions, where we stack one on top of each other. We, we can dig into that more. But that is a very interesting thing to do for space, because in a space application, there's a number of, of things that you want, but one of them is you want high efficiency, right? You're powering a spacecraft, and there's no other available uh, electricity source once you've launched it. So you want to get as much efficiency from your solar panels as possible. And if you have to pay more for that, that's perhaps tolerable. That, that's probably something that, that, that most satellite manufacturers are willing to pay. So these three fives are generally more expensive, but they're much more efficient. There's other details about them that are useful for space. One of the things that uh, I think probably most folks will be curious about is, again, they hear 47.1% efficiency and they think, well, when, is, when are we going to see this in some sort of a commercial application in the United States? For context, how long has this technology been in the works in, the, in your lab? So that's a good question. So we have been working on these kinds of multi-junctions since the mid-80s. This was a program that, that started with um, Jerry Olson and Mark Wanless and Sarah Kurtz. They're probably the three luminaries in this field. You know, they started growing gallium indium phosphide gallium arsenide tandem cells of so two junctions. I mean, of course, the history of solar cells goes back to the 50s, and there have been single junctions of some of these materials. But the first tandem was in the very late 80s, early 90s, and that was a two-junction and then it became a three junction and then it, you know, four and, and so on. So we've been working on this for, you know, what is that? That's over 25 years now, mostly for terrestrial applications. Uh, a lot of our technology has, of course, been transferred to the space industry and picked up by, by American companies and by foreign companies um, that have been interested in making space solar panels. But the Department of Energy has been investing in this kind of three, five multi-junction technology since, uh, you know, for, for over 25 years now. So you mentioned earlier that we might want to dig a little deeper on multi-junction. Can you outline for us the inherent complexity around multi-junction and why it's taken 25 years for us to get to something that looks like it might be able to be commercially viable as terrestrial application that we could use in utility scale production? Sure. Let me go a little technical on you first. You construct a solar cell out of a semiconductor that, that has an energy scale that we call a band gap. And if you have a very high band gap material, then you have a, you generate a high voltage, but you don't collect a lot of current. If you have a low band gap material, then you collect a lot of current, but you don't generate a lot of voltage. And the power that you put out is the product of these two. 
So somewhere between a high band gap and a low band gap, you're going to come up with an optimum. And serendipitously, that optimum is around silicon. So silicon is a very useful material for solar cells. Number one, it's got nearly the optimal band gap. And number two, it's, you know, it's, it's the most abundant element in the Earth's crust or the second most abundant, whatever it is. So there's a lot of silicon and it's perfect for solar cells, but it only captures about half of the solar spectrum. So you can do better by dividing the solar spectrum into smaller units. And that's what we call a multi-junction. So instead of using one junction to capture, you know, half the solar spectrum and convert it at whatever voltage you can convert it at, we try to subdivide the spectrum into as many components as possible. So a two junction, a three junction, a four junction. So each of these junctions is tuned to a narrow wavelength range of the solar spectrum. And in doing so, you reduce thermalization losses. You reduce losses in a semiconductor due to basically the generation of heat. And it's taken a long time to learn to do this in a way that spans, you know, the, the six junction cell is spanning, you know, it's not spanning the entire solar spectrum, but it's, it's spanning like well over 80% of the usable solar spectrum. Understanding the materials challenges inherent in developing semiconductors with the right band gaps to do this properly has been difficult. And we've built this up slowly from two junctions to three to four to five and so on. My understanding is, and certainly looking at some of the photos that you guys published along with the article on uh, Nature Energy, is that the technology that we're looking at that's gone from a previous record you all set with what's the equivalent of one sun, and maybe we want to explain a little bit about that, to now 143 suns and 47.1% efficient, is looking predominantly at the ability to concentrate energy onto a smaller uh, surface area. Is that accurate? That's right. Concentrator photovoltaics is sort of a little class of its own. You can think of when you were a kid and you held a magnifying glass above a patch of leaves or, or a colony of ants. You concentrate the light into a small thing and you, right, you get this intensity that, that could set the leaves on fire. But you know, what's really interesting is that you have a small spot size. So you, you start with a large magnifying glass and you end up with a small focused light. And we're doing that at a larger scale. I mean, we're not using a magnifying glass. We're using an optic uh, or, or if this were deployed in the field, it would use a big optic, you know, for example, a parabolic dish that collected a lot of light and focused it onto a small cell or a Fresnel lens that collected a lot of light and then refracted it down to a, a point. And so in doing that, you can make a solar cell that's a lot smaller. Instead of having to make a solar cell that's the size of the lens, you're making a much smaller cell. And the solar cells we're talking about are on the order of, of a tenth to a full square centimeter, right? 0.1 to one square centimeter, very small. That means you can save a lot of money on the material costs. And the material costs of these three five cells are very high. The, on a per area basis, it's a, at least 100 times as expensive to make these three fives right now with today's technology, with today's growth technology, as it is to make a silicon solar cell. So we said earlier in the interview that the space industry maybe doesn't care so much about costs, or at least you know, they care considerably less about costs because of the environment in which they're operating. But terrestrially, you know, you're competing against other solar cells and you're competing against more conventional energy sources. So cost is a big dish, big issue. And the ability to grow and fabricate really small cells uh, is important. Um, and so you use the concentration of light to you know, backfill the intensity that you're losing because of the small cells. You also gain, and, and this is more fundamental, but you, more, you gain efficiency as you concentrate. And that has to do with recombination mechanisms in the, in the cell itself. You know, every commercial solar opportunity counts, so why lose that sale to high demand charges? Did you know that you can offer up to 30% in demand charge savings at a tenth of the cost of installing a battery? 
With DemandX, the innovative new demand charge reduction software from Extensible Energy, your client can boost ROI and reduce payback time without all the expense. And as a Suncast listener, you can get a free demand charge analysis by going to extensibleenergy.com forward slash Suncast. And while you're there, check out three recent case studies on how this easy-to-install software is a win-win for you and your commercial solar clients. DemandX works for office buildings, retail, churches, and more. See for yourself at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast. Did you miss out on the live sessions of the Suncast Clean Energy Summit? We had so much fun with some of the most inspiring and impactful leaders in the clean economy throughout the Americas, learning about where the industry's going and giving you practical advice on how you too can participate and grow with us. Well, you're in luck because my team recorded the whole thing and you can check it out over at suncastsummit.com. It's posted there for a limited time for free. You can also see all of the replays inside of our private Facebook group, the Clean Energy Guild, where all the videos are posted and lots of solar warriors just like you are connecting. Both are linked over at suncastsummit.com. See you on the inside. Now you mentioned the ability to use a Fresnel lens or some sort of uh, optic refle- reflection to concentrate the technology. One of the questions that I feel is probably pretty common in what might be considered the commercial solar space, folks like myself, lay people, not, not PhDs in material science, trying to figure out what's the commercial application here is, is this a technology that we'll see in the next, in, in my commercial lifetime? Is this a technology, technology we'll begin developing solar projects around? Or perhaps said a different way, what is the commercial application here in a terrestrial format for this kind of technology? Yeah, that's a great question. There actually are commercial ventures that are around already. The CPV industry kind of had its peak maybe 10 years ago. You know, there's a number in China, there's one in, in Southern Colorado and Alamosa. There's a few others around the United States. Uh, there's a number in Spain. So there's already been commercialization efforts at this. Uh, this is a utility scale project. So you could imagine that this is something that, that a utility would, would implement in a solar farm, right? And part of the reason I say that is that you, you need to track the, the sun. Uh, so, you know, people may be, may be familiar with, with single-axis tracking. A lot of places, you know, put a, an array of silicon cells on a central axis and then, and then tilt east to west. But when you concentrate, you have to do better than that. You can't just tilt east to west. You have to actually follow the sun, you know, kind of the way uh, a telescope follows a star. And... That's not something that I would imagine most homeowners are going to want to put on their roof. You know, you could imagine a, a small company may, might put something like this in their field, but it's really a utility scale application. But there have been some generating plants around the world and in the United States looking at uh, concentrator photovoltaics. This sort of peaked maybe 10 years ago. And what happened in the 10 years since then is that the silicon price has really gone down. And, and you know, silicon now takes up 95% of the market share. It's very hard to compete with that. You know, we have been developing cost models for CPV for many years now. The Department of Energy has has supported this kind of work for a long time. And it was all based on, you know, realistic projections that at volume scale manufacturing, this could be an economic solution. We'll have to see going forward whether that that continues to whether that could prove to be true, uh, you know, in, in a world that is dominated by silicon PV. I mean, it's a compelling argument that this kind of technology could be the thing that allows us to bring CPV back to market. One of the things I remember from a project development perspective back in the day when Greenvolts and uh, others, uh, competitors to them were bringing product uh, as a concentrator to market were the tight tolerances on 
the required on the tracker. Do you believe that we have the commercial availability of that tracking tolerance now to be able to bring this type of thing to market? I think so. That's that's a little outside my expertise. The higher the concentration, the more tolerant you need to be. So if you're if you're concentrating at a thousand suns, you need to be you know very tightly uh, tracking on the sun, very tight tolerance. If you're concentrating at a hundred x, you can be considerably lower. Um, for a while, the it seemed like most concentrator PV cells were developed for around five hundred suns. We can certainly make trackers that have that kind of tolerance. I can't speak to the cost of them, but I, I think you know you're sort of pushing the costs from the solar cell onto the cost of everything else, right? The nice thing about making really small cells is that the other pieces, the, the optics and the trackers become uh, larger fractions of the cost. And, um, you know, there, there are solutions toward making lower cost optics and, uh, and trackers that, uh, that can do this. One of the developments in, in recent years that I think has been really exciting is that some of the original CPV installations were, were big. You know, they had, they, had, they had larger cells. They had a square centimeter cells and they had big optics. And that means you need to have the optics and the, and the cells, you know, some distance apart, which meant you need a lot of framing, a lot of aluminum. This, this makes for a heavy thing. ARPA-E, which is a, an agency of the Department of Energy, funded a, a program a number of years ago, it just ended last year, called Mosaic, that was really looking at micro CPV, at really making really small cells and small optics and small form factors. And, you know, they were looking at one inch, for example, between the cell and the optic. And, and all of that means, means the thing can be lighter. And if the thing is lighter... You don't need to have a tracker that's that's capable of carrying, a, you know, a ton. It can carry considerably less weight, and that means the engineering that goes into making it more tolerant is, is easier. So you know, there are a lot of good directions here that 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 if we are able to continue pursuing, could really lead to something. You know, I've been working a lot, as you know, with the Made in America Challenge Prize uh, folks for the Solar Prize at NREL. NREL has historically been a test bed and a lab for helping kick out ideas that could be commercially viable, that can kickstart manufacturing uh, back in the day when we had manufacturing stateside, Mm -hmm. uh, domestically rather, with silicon, as you pointed out, accurately being just so super cost effective from a production perspective. A lot of folks in the industry are, I'll say naysayers to the idea that there could be manufacturing uh, domestically again for solar at scale. You know, you and I discussed offline the idea that with the global pandemic and certainly with the current administration, there's a uh, there's a lot of inertia towards finding domestic alternatives for manufacturing uh, and certainly around our energy policies, and energy devices. Do you think that this is something that could potentially enable or kickstart that sort of domestic manufacturing? And if so, are there already folks that are working on this kind of domestic manufacturing? I know that Two of the most prominent space PV companies are in the United States, and they do their manufacturing in the United States. And those companies have all had, in the past, they've had CPV product lines. You know, those are probably dormant product lines now. But you know, we, at NREL, we've partnered with uh, with some of them. We've actually done some some technology transfer of some of our work. You know, not the six J, but but an earlier you know four and three J stuff to some of those companies. If this were to be the kind of thing that we're going to ramp up, yeah, I think those companies would be at the forefront of that that kind of effort and that manufacturing could start in the U.S. I remember you mentioned Spectralab. Who are the others that folks might be familiar with? Spectralab is is one of the key players there in California. Solero Technologies is in Albuquerque. Uh, Microlink Devices is a company outside Chicago. Solar Junction is a company in the Bay Area very interesting. I wasn't really familiar with what I might consider to be a domestic manufacturing base for solar, apart from the obvious uh, now Chinese players who've set up uh, domestic manufacturing in states like Georgia and Florida to 
comply with some of the recent policy restrictions. I'm curious, just from your perspective now, back at a high level, it seems to me like you all are continually pushing the envelope on what's possible from a material science perspective. For you as a scientist who've spent more than a decade at NREL thinking about these things, what are some of the main takeaways or key learnings for you from this? And, and what do you think it will be able to, what does it mean for our industry moving forward? There's a lot of good material science to continue to study. You know, one of the most interesting aspects of this six junction work is that we have changed the lattice constant. We've really changed the crystal structure of the underlying semiconductor. And in doing so, you're able to access band gaps, materials with, with energy scales that are, that are different than what's available when you maintain the crystal structure. And doing that has opened up a huge area of research and, and a huge range of possibilities. So, you know, a key takeaway is that the more variables that you can play with and learn to control, uh, the more opportunities you have for, for innovation and for, for solving interesting problems. And some of what we've learned in making these solar cells could be applied to, to other optoelectronic devices that have nothing to do with, with solar. So, for example, there are plenty of interesting applications for detectors, you know, for power receivers that are at wavelengths where there is no material that naturally picks up that, that wavelength. There's no band gap with a, with a substrate that is exactly appropriate to that. So you have to change the lattice constant. And we've learned how to do that. And you know, the 6J is, 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 a, is a prime example of, of engineering of the material science, but then but using that material science to engineer a structure. You know, another key takeaway, I think, is that there's, there's, there's a lot to learn here. Uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about thresholds and over the years made progress toward those thresholds, uh, but we still have ways to go. There's still, there's still electricity to be able to be squeezed out of a solar cell. And, you know, in this industry, efficiency counts for a lot. Right? If you can make a 32% cell into a 32.5% cell, that's a big deal. Well, Miles, we're going to link to the, uh, to the article that you all uh, published and several of the press releases. And I wanted to just finish with one note, uh, which you very elegantly tied into here. Certainly not asking for your formal sort of in-rel opinion here, but for those of us who ask ourselves this question around cocktails, thinking about 47% already being above what we thought was possible, where do you as a material scientist see that theoretical limit? Where do you believe we can actually see efficiency get to for this technology? So I think that this 6J cell could surpass 50% with, with some additional effort. You know, there's a little bit more materials work to do on you know, making the material quality even better. It's also an electronic circuit. So there's series resistance, which is a power loss mechanism. And, you know, some of the work we have been doing in this project was to keep the series resistance as low as possible. You know, we, we had, in fact, done some of the, the legwork to, to develop pieces that would, that if we could integrate them into this, if we, you know, we sort of ran out of time. But if we could integrate them into our device, I think we could, we could surpass 50%. You know, getting much beyond that, you can try to engineer this to operate at a higher concentration, you know, one could add more junctions. This is a six junction. You could make a seven or an eight junction. I mean, you'll, 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 you'll continue to increase the efficiency, but with diminishing returns. Uh, I think breaking a 50% barrier would be a tremendous achievement. You know, going much beyond that will probably take a lot of research dollars and, uh, and dedicated work. I'm not sure what the actual limit is. Well, it's taken us uh, 25 years to break the 45% efficient barrier. Do you think it's going to be another five, 10? I mean, you guys worked on the six junction for three and a half, I believe. We talking uh, maybe another five ten years? Um, no, I, I think if we had, I think if we had uh, supplemental funding and, and a year of work, we could we could hit fifty percent. You know, if we wanted to divide this up into more junctions, that, that that's another big project. That that's another five year commitment to develop the alloys that would 
be necessary to to split up the the, the solar spectrum into seven or eight junctions. It's not not totally clear that that's worth it outside of an academic pursuit of high efficiency. But I think we could. I think that if with with you know with with a year's worth of work and some funding, we could make a fifty percent sell. Well, all in the name of science, we're all eagerly waiting uh, on the sidelines here, cheering you on, and we're happy to have the opportunity to host the NREL scientists here on Suncast to talk about that theoretical limit, to explore and dig deeper into the topic of photovoltaic cell efficiency. Miles Steiner is a senior scientist at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and he's a co-author, as we mentioned, of a recent paper that he and his colleagues published in Nature Energy, highlighting their world record 47.1% efficient six-junction PV cell technology. Miles, thanks for taking your time here to be with us on Suncast today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Gosh, it is so fascinating to see the new barriers PV technology is breaking through. And I'm super grateful for the NREL team connecting me with Miles to get a better understanding of what this achievement really means for those of us out there on the front lines. Sounds like it might be a while before we are able to appreciate this kind of innovation in anything other than a utility scale application, but it's exciting nonetheless to see what's possible with the limits that the NREL 3.5 team are pushing PV technology to achieve. That's a wrap on this conversation, Warrior, but I do hope that we'll see you back here on Thursday for this week's long-form interview. I also encourage you to check out other episodes of Suncast and let me know what you think of these shorter-form discussions. Do you want more like this? We've got hundreds of episodes, resources, and highlights from these discussions, along with the social media links for each episode guest, book recommendations, and so much more over at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find other ways to engage with our Suncast tribe, like subscribing to our weekly tribe-exclusive emails or even joining our exclusive inner circle of infinite learners and clean economy champions we affectionately refer to as the Guild. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I do so appreciate your rating and review so that others can also find Suncast more easily. And a special thank you to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, as well as learn more about becoming a sponsor if that's something that you're interested in. You can follow the links there as well to any of the offers that we've discussed about any of our sponsors here today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. 